0: let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study your Word, and I pray that as we examine this material and as we learn and equip ourselves with how to study, that you would guide and direct, and that we would become better students of your Word, that we can learn more how to follow you and live according to the Word that you have given us. Thank you again, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, inductive Bible study, moving through this. Jim got us kicked off last week with some great foundational principles, and we talked about what is called the inductive method. We kind of concluded a little bit with this last week. Uh, There's three aspects of this. There is observation. We want to establish that basic knowledge of what the text is saying, and then from there we go to interpretation. We want to understand the meaning of the text at its exegetical level, so we have to Okay, there's what does it say, Well, what does it mean, and then finally we conclude with application, how is the text best applied based on its one meaning. So we do believe in the principle of the single meaning of a text, there are people out there that would say that a text can have multiple meanings and we say, no, no, the author intended a particular meaning, we want to discover that through the process of interpretation and we are going to define a few words along the way as far as what that looks like, um, and then we want to apply it based off of that one meaning. And there are often multiple applications to the one single meaning. So, we we don't want to get the idea confused that because there's one meaning, there can only be one application or this can only be applied in one way. No, there's a myriad of ways. That's one of the beauties of Scripture, the fact that it is timeless, right? It transcends culture, it transcends time, it transcends uh, whatever geographical setting that we find ourselves in, it it can be applied in any setting, in any time, in any place in the world. And so we want to study the Scriptures to find out how it can be applied. So we're going to start by getting into the concept of observation. And there are five steps that uh, the book that we're kind of using as our as our guide for this. This is Inductive Bible Study by uh, Fern Kostenberger. They give us five steps for observation, and we're going to look at Really, the first two of these today, Lord willing, if we have time. But the first step is comparing translations. So there are translations as tools for observation. The second step is asking the right questions of the text, engaging the text as an active listener. From there, we're going to read with discernment. We're going to determine significant terms as we're making observations about the text, as we're asking questions about the text. We're going to try to discern one of the most significant aspects. Of things within the text, and that'll be brought out through our questions. We want to have eyes to see. We want to observe the literary features within the text itself, and then we want to determine the literary units, basic discourse analysis. We, we never want to study a Bible verse. We want to study multiple Bible verses in its section because we understand it within context. So that's that's kind of the five steps for observation that we're going to look at Lord Willing we'll get through steps 1 and 2 today. So let's begin with some comparing some Bible translations. What are some translations that you've had history with like 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 so for me growing up I grew up the early portion of my life at first was King James and then we shifted to New King James. I was probably New King James all the way up until college, and at college the, most of the professors there used NASB, and then after graduation and the, NA, the ESV became really popular, I kind of ended up adopting the ESV with the dabbling of the CSB mixed in there. So that's, that's kind of my history of what, what are translations that you all have used, have been familiar with predominantly over time. For me, growing up, the the church that I was involved in, um, I think they when we first started going there in the oh, in the eighties, I think they were NKJV, mm-hmm. um, and then at some point they switched over to NASB, um, and they were there for a while, and then at some point after. After I was no longer there, we um, they switched over to the ESV. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, personally, the Bible that I had growing up was NIV. Um, and then probably sometime in college, I ended up getting a, a thin line ESV, and I've mm-hmm. been using the ESV ever since. Very good. <laughs> growing up, my... I remember my grandmother always had the KJV. Um, mom had the NIV. Um, I mean, my first Bible was was a KJV from the Dollar Tree. Um, birthday present, or Christmas present. Um, but then I think my first Bible that I really... Read would be the NET. Mm. Um, and then I didn't know anything about the ESV until we got married. And, and he said, No, you need to get the ESV. It's way better than the NET. And now he's kind of interested in the NET, so it makes me giggle. Everything comes around for a circle, yeah. right? I mean, it's pretty much always been ESV. All I can remember is that Eastside they required NIV. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. 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 Okay. Because that's where we were going when I got the Bible, and yeah. And then your first big kid Bible, your own big kid Bible, is what I had too. The one that I gave to your car. Well, have you noticed as you read through these different translations that they differ in places? I remember there's this one time in college or in, uh, in high school where uh, we were doing. You, you ever do sword drills? Do you know what sword, oh, yes. do you know what sword yes. drills are? Yes. So a sword drill. Call it a passage, you have to so you have to hold your sword in the air, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's Ephesians chapter 6. You hold your sword in the air, Bible's ready, and then. They would say a passage, you know, John 3.16. And you've got to try to find John 3.16 as fast as you can. And the first person to find it stands up and reads it. And it was a way to encourage, if you have the books of the Bible memorized and if you can find passages quickly, you know, that, that's an indication that you're familiar enough with the layout of your Bible. It's a way to encourage being familiar with your Bible. It's pretty cool. I remember in, so in middle school, well, can I just keep going? We got a lot of ground to cover. So there's, there's a, there's a point to this. There's a, um, a, someone was doing the sword drill, and they called out a verse from the book of Acts, and the only Bibles that had that verse in it was the King James and New King James. The ESV and the NIV and people, or actually the ESV didn't even exist at that point, but there were a lot of people that had NIVs in our youth group, and the NIV had regulated that verse to the footnote. And so everybody's trying to look for this verse, and it doesn't exist in their Bible. It's in a footnote. And so it was a kind of a jokey thing, but it raises the question, why is it that way? Why are there some verses that are regulated to footnotes? You know, how do we, how do we think about this? Well, one of the things that we have to recognize is there's no such thing as a perfect translation. We're dealing with moving ideas and words from other languages into English. There's not always perfect equivalence of every word, and... There's a whole bunch of other factors at play when it comes to bringing things over and we are dealing with flawed human translators that are doing the best that we can and really do a fantastic job, but there's always going to be decisions that are made that are based on a variety of things. And so there's there's really four different categories of differences for why our translations are going to differ. Some are going to be exegetical decisions. There's a word, and they're making a decision about how to bring that into the… into the target language, which is English. There's translation theory issues, and we're going to get deeper into each of these as we go through. Textual differences in the manuscripts that were used to translate the Bible, and then target language shifts. A target language is the language in which something is being translated into. So, in this case, the target language is English. It's coming from Greek and Hebrew, and it's coming into English. Well, we're going to do just a, we're going to have some fun exercises this morning. Good morning, good morning. morning. You're just in time for the fun exercises. (laughs) Here's some handouts. And I'm going to, I'm going to pass down this box of Bibles here. I've got, there's six Bibles in here. Pick one, pass it down. Can we look at? I I suppose. (laughs) All right, he's got the NASB. Go ahead. uh, As you pick it up, open it up to Psalm eight, verse five. Everybody opens up Psalm eight, verse five. He looks so disappointed. (laughs) <laughs> like oh, oh. It, it is pretty small it is pretty small print I'll I'll take whatever's left Oh that's better Yeah Psalm 8 verse 5 So we're looking at uh, different… why do translations differ? And we're looking at examples of passages where as we open up our different translations, we're going to see things rendered just a little bit differently. And the goal for this is try to help us just have a brief level understanding of why it is the case that some translations are going to be just a little bit different from time to time. So the first is because of exegetical decisions. So if we're in the book of Psalms and we're looking at Psalm 8, 5… Um I'm going to start here. I've got the I've got the New King James here in front of me. This is what the what was left to me within the boxes. We're all got different different <laughs> translations here. And I I grew up with the New King James. I was just talking about that a minute ago. That was the majority of my memorization work has been in the New King James. So we have there's different texts where the underlying text, the underlying language, so in this case it's Hebrew, the word is what the word is, and there's not debate about what the original Hebrew word is. The decision that has to be made is what's the best way to translate this within its context into the target language. So, we're going to be looking, I'm just going to look at the first half of verse 5, and where it says, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. Well, now I've got the Well, whoopsie daisies here. Let's get this up here. I've got the new King James. Whoops. Undo that. How do I undo here? Ah. I'm going to erase all that. The new King James. And I've got angels in my text. You have made him a little lower than the angels. Phil, what do you have? You've got the new American Standard. That's what you've got. You have made him a little lower than God. Ah, I actually should have done this the other way around. So, we've got God, and this is the NASB. Uh, Robin, you got, looks like you've got the CSB. And you made him a little less than God. A little less than God. So that's the CSB, still has the translation God there. You've got the message. <laughs> what do we got in the message? Yet, yet we've so narrowly missed being God. We've so narrowly missed being God. So it is God, but okay, it's a very different idea there, isn't there? It's different than you have made him a little lower than, and oh, we've narrowly missed being. Yes. So, yeah, that's. Uh, Translate as little g, God's plural. Okay, so I should really move that over here to God's. And that's the message. Oops, that should be a G. That shouldn't be a B. Jessica. Jessica has the NIV. Angels. So yeah, yeah. over here we got the NIV as well as, as Angels. What do you got there, Lily? You got the King James, the authorized translation. Than angels. And angels. So we didn't have a translation that, there's some translations that render it as heavenly beings. You made them a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, so what we have here, the Hebrew word is the word Elohim. The majority of times that's translated within the Old Testament, that word is translated as God. However, there are some contexts where the word Elohim can have a different meaning based on the context. It doesn't always refer to God as we think of God. It's really a generic term that sometimes gets used to refer to the one true God, but sometimes it gets used in reference to false idols, false gods like, like Baal and all these other things. Sometimes it's in the context, it's very clear that it refers to angelic beings and E.T. says heavenly beings. So we have to make the decision based on the context, okay, we're trying to make an exegetical decision. What did the original author intend? And we're trying to make that determination in the different translations based on the context are making a different interpretive decision and in bringing that into the English. Interestingly enough, though, it seems like the message is the most literal rendering of that word. It, be, because the word Elohim is a plural word. And so you could render it as gods. Uh, there is—I don't know about the whole "we've narrowly missed" part. I mean, that's the, that's that's a little off the little off the beaten path a bit. But so okay, we've got some. This there, that's one example. Here's another example. First Corinthians seven one. Let's go to that's that was an Old Testament example. Now let's go to a New Testament example. And here, it's not so much about the words themselves but about punctuation and quotation marks. So look at 1 Corinthians 7.1, and in the New King James, yeah, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, colon, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So we have a. An indication based on how this has been brought into English with a, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, colon, and so he's indicating with that colon in the translation that, okay, what what it follows is what you wrote to me. Different translations put this differently. So I've got a colon with no translation marks. What do you have there, Phil, in the NASB? Yeah, concerning. Are there quotation marks around, it is good for a man not to touch a woman? No. No quotation marks. Is there a colon or a semicolon or anything? Just a period. period. Okay. So that kind of leaves the door open a little bit for us to try to figure out what's going on in the text. Robin. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, colon, quotation, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. End quote. There you go. So there's there's a di- different translation, and there's a colon, and there's quotation marks. What do we got in the message? I'm actually I didn't look up this one in the message, so I'm kind of afraid now. Embrace you yourselves. <laughs> Okay, so he pra- fa- uh, phrases it as a question in the in the message: Is it good for a man to have sexual relations? Okay, yeah, right? <laughs> yes, and g- yeah. It just kind of makes it more generalized. Yep, sure. NIV. <laughs> Here you go, so um we have uh and then Lily go ahead and read the tiny Yeah, the tiny words in the King James there. Now concerning the things wrong, well, you wrote unto me I'm liking that think the two on top of each other. That's the colon. colon. It is good for a man not to touch a Okay, and no quotation marks. Even. Right. Yeah, that's just touching, yeah, and that's in the, in the New King James, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So, what's going on in the text? All right, so in, in this letter in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing several things that apparently the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul and asked him a bunch of questions, and so he's kind of responding to them at different points, and different translations bring that into the English in different ways to try to clue us in and try to indicate to us in the translation committee's opinion Where is the actual question that he's responding to and how is that phrased? So in the message, Eugene Peterson, he brings it in and makes it, oh, the question was this and phrases it in the form of a question. Whereas a lot of our other translations, it's a statement, but it's put into quotation brackets or there's a colon or there's some kind of indication that's letting us know, hey, this isn't Paul's statement. He's not saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Like He's not just stating that. He's responding to a specific question that the Corinthians asked, and our different translations bring that into the English in different ways. Yes, yeah. So they're in, it, it would have been a, a statement that Paul was referring to. So. Uh, you know, maybe there would have been a letter that would have been written to Paul and someone would have, you know, we think it's good for a man not to touch a woman. What do you think about that? Or it could have been phrased in different ways. And so now he's pulling that out. Okay, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay, now let's talk about that. And then as we read on in, in, uh, in the passage, we find… Paul's response and his re- response to that. So, but it's it's an exegetical decision that the translation committees have to make as they're bringing in even just punctuation. They're trying to discern the best that they can and they're making exegetical decisions for how to best bring that into the English. So, as we're reading, the reason why we're talking about different translations, we can use different translations as tools for Bible study because that can, by comparing different translations and seeing how different things are translated we're being clued in to areas where hey you know what there might be an exegetical difficulty here this could be something that i need to study more in order to gain a better understanding of it so when we're in psalm chapter eight we have to wrestle with is this talking about gods is this talking about heavenly beings is this talking about angels what's what's actually the text referring to and i have to make my own exegetical conclusions based off of the study that i do but now that we see that there's a difference in translation there's a point for us to say, hmm, I've got to think about this when I'm studying this text. So there are exegetical decisions that lead to different translations. There's also issues of translation theory. Let's flip over to Amos chapter 4, verse 6. This is a minor prophet. Joel Amos Obadiah, yeah, at, towards the beginning of the minor prophets. Famous Amos. And uh, we have you, Amos chapter four verse six. <laughs> I'm sorry. You, this is uh, I think this one's slightly larger print. You want to trade with me? Okay. So we have this uh, translation continuum up here as as far as translation theory. We've always heard about this, right? There's the word-for-word idea, and then there's a thought-for-thought, and then we move over to the right side, and we have more of a paraphrase. And so when we're way over here on word-for-word, we think of, you know, the most word-for-word we can get is an interlinear, right, where it's just, there's the words, and there they are. Then we've got like the NASB, the ESV, the King James and stuff. And as we move this way, we're getting more towards kind of thought for thought idea. HCSB, we got the NIV, and then we're continuing to move over and we're really getting closer to a paraphrase where we got the NLT and then we got the message way over on this side of the paraphrase side of the spectrum. So there are some, um, there are some translations that have come out since this graphic was made that don't make it onto the screen. But when we start thinking about the translation theory, one of the things that each translation has to reckon with is how are we going to handle idioms? Idioms are, you know, uh, figures of speech that communicate something that often makes sense in the original language, that when we bring it over into a target language, it's hard for us to reckon, okay, now what does that actually mean? For example, Amos… 4-6, 4-6, Phil, would you read the NASB Amos 4-6? But, but I gave you but I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and of in all your places. I gave you cleanness of teeth. Well, what in the world does that mean? Isn't he gave everybody toothbrushes? Hey, it's good to have clean teeth, right? Yeah, it's preventing cavities. That's yeah, great. Why is why does it sound like that's a bad thing within the text of Amos? Well, other translations try to bring this into English in a different way, like the CSB. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat. In all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities. Yet you did not return. To this is I gave you absolutely nothing to eat. So now we have instead of a word for word, literally in the Hebrew, cleanness of teeth is exactly what we find. Well according to the translators of the CSB, that actually hinders understanding of the text. We need to translate this in a way that is going to be accurately reflecting what the idiom was trying to communicate. So, we say, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat. What does the message say? All right, he says, I've emptied your cupboards. I've emptied your pantries. That's a little bit more, um, almost more idiomatic even into English. Not quite, it's not a full idiom, but he gives a, a pretty vibrant picture that people within our context would understand very clearly about what's going on. What's the NIV say? Empty stomachs, okay, that even gets us completely away from the idea of of your mouth, like cleanness of teeth, now that i got empty stomachs. (laughs) That's exactly the point, yeah, if you have no food, your teeth are going to be clean because there's nothing to get your teeth dirty on when you eat food. What's the King James say? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So we have a, a, this, according to the different translation philosophy about how they're going to deal with the word-for-word word actual literal idea versus how we're going to bring that into English, different translations are making different decisions to try to communicate the ideas. For the sake of time, we're not going to flip over to Luke chapter 9, but there, that's, a, that's a New Testament text that we could go to to try to illustrate this idea some more, where is it going to be a kind of a word-for-word word or an idea-for-idea, a thought-for-thought idea for idea a thought for thought translation uh, textual differences um, I'm actually going to take us over to the New Testament Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 when it comes to translation or textual differences, different translations are based off of different textual families which means there's different traditions of manuscripts that have been found in history and some people really like oh we have the majority text which is just the most amount of text or the byzantine text family there's an Alexandrian text type family, which, which is considered to be, by most scholars, it's considered to be older and more reliable. Because it's older, the idea is that it's closer to the original manuscripts themselves, and so by the, on that token, it should be more reliable because it has less time to be uh, corrupted, so to speak, less time to be for there to be scribal errors or different things introduced into the text, whereas other individuals who would hold to um, were a Byzantine text type or a majority text or some people refer what is called the, uh, the Textus Receptus tradition where when, the, when uh, it was translated into Latin, the Textus Receptus, the received text, they would say, oh, no, we need to, we need to have a manuscript family that's based off of what the Textus Receptus was translated from. <laughs> and so we have different text types and based on our different translations that are relying upon different textual families, we're going to have different things within our Bibles. As a result. For example, in Colossians 1:14, NASB says what? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sin. Sounds simple enough. CSB In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sounds simple enough. Message It's, it's a challenge in the message. It's, yeah, I think this would be Hey, that does help. Pick up the NIV there. Yeah, what's, what do we got in the NIV? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. And what does the King James say? Oh, what was different there? In his, blood. in his blood. Oh. So it is. So we have in the King James, in whom we have redemption in his blood. And in the New King James, um, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so now we have an issue. Oh, no. We've got these modern translations. They're removing the blood of Jesus. And so we have an issue here. How do we think about these, these translation issues? Did you find it in the message? I'm really curious now. wow yeah that's that's completely different altogether well so we have these different translations, and so we have to try to think through okay what 's going on here and it's sometimes those differences are on the basis of the textual family now we can this can raise a whole issue about oh you know what about these modern translations getting rid of the blood of Jesus you know what's what 's going on here? Are they corrupting our Bibles and removing the means through which we are saved? And we can confidently say, no, that's, that's not what's happening. If we were actually to flip over to Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. And you will find that phrase, through His blood, even within the modern translations where that phrase was not found in Colossians. It's going to be found in Ephesians. So that's someone with a modern translate, like the CSB. There, uh, read Ephesians one seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the there it is. Of our to the of his grace. In Him we have redemption through His blood, like that. And that we're going to find that in the NASB, the NIV, all these modern translations where in it's even in the message. <laughs> these modern translations where it was missing, so to speak, in Colossians. Well, it's found in Ephesians. Well, what scholars believe happened is that someone who was, who was copying Colossians was very familiar with the phrase from Ephesians, and so either just out of habit or out of who knows what, it just, you know, in whom we have redemption through His blood and then just kept on going, that's a common scribal mistake, a common scribal error that has been known to happen in the copying of, of the Bible over the years. Does that mean that our Bibles are corrupted? No. It does not, not by any stretch of the imagination. And all the, the, the people that try to say, oh, you know, they're taking out the blood of Jesus. If that was true, they would have to remove the blood of Jesus from every text. But they're not doing that. They're trying to be faithful to what they believe is, is the original text type as, as faithfully as they possibly can. And so we have to wrestle with these things and we have to reckon with them. And this is, again, another clue for us as we're thinking about, okay, as we're doing Bible study, these different translations help us see uh, different things that we need to pay attention to. Sometimes it's because of target language shifts. Now, I'm going, just for the sake of time, I'm only going to look at one of these texts, and I'm just going to look at the King James versus one modern translation. So, if you would flip over to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Yeah, it's... It's, it's a little bit of a challenge. There are some contexts, so I'll just say, I'll, while we're flipping there, this James 3 passage in the King James, is, it talks about people with gay clothing. Uh, the meaning of gay has shifted, right? So, when there shifts in the target language, and English is the target language in this case… When there's shifts in the meaning of a word, it's good for us to have new translations to help reflect that shift in meaning so we accurately understand the text. We're not talking about someone with homosexual clothing. It's, uh, it's you know, it's, yeah, pride clothes. It, it, it's uh, a fine, sometimes in the newer translations, fine clothing, expensive clothing, etc. First Peter 2.12 uses the word conversation. Let your conversations be in such a manner. Well, in the Old King James, the word conversation referred to just your manner of life, the way you lived your life. It didn't refer to just like a spoken conversation. So the newer translations are updated to reflect the new meanings of some of these words. Now let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. Okay, Lily, what does that mean? Read it again. Just that first phrase. Well, and the next one. (laughs) We do you to wit. Well, what does that mean? How do we understand that phrase? Like that's we don't talk like that anymore. Yes, brethren, we do you to wits of the grace of God. Well, so this is where a modern translations it's very helpful for us to have these because it brings it into a modern so uh, Phil read the NASB of that verse there. Yeah, brethren We want to make known something, so we do you to wit. So we're we're trying to make you a witness to something here. We're we're trying to make known, make you aware of something. We want you to be made known about such and such a thing. So, there's shifts in the target language over time. Eventually, the C, the ESV is going to need to be updated because the language is going to continue to evolve. Eventually, so I mean the NIV has undergone revisions, the HCSB became the CSB, the NASB has been updated. Now some of these updates are due to other issues, but some of them are out of a genuine desire to update the language, and so I've got the New King James, it's designed to be an update of the King James, where it's the same translation philosophy, it's the same textual basis but it's seeking to update the language. So in the New King James, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God. It does away with the we do you to wit type phrases because it's old language, we just don't really have a way to understand that as as well anymore. So there's different reasons for why different things are translated differently. And when we're going through and identifying the different translation differences, that can be clues for us To begin to hone in on, okay, there's differences here. These could be areas where I need to ask questions. Why is this translated this way in this translation? And why is it translated that way in that translation? And that leads us into asking good questions. A couple of really good resources for you online, if you don't want to open up a whole bunch of Bibles and have them scattered across your desk or table or something... BibleGateway.com is a great resource for pulling up multiple translations. I've used Bible Gateway all the time. and uh, It'll put it into parallel, uh, you know, translations here. There's uh, uh, BibleHub.com, which you look up an individual verse and it'll give you a whole bunch of different translations on one screen that you can look up and see. Oh, here's all the different translations, even, you know, just ones you've never even heard of before they're there. And seeing the differences can clue you in and begin to cause you to start asking good questions, which is what step two is in the observation process. Now, I'm going to move through this next material a little bit quicker than we did the translation stuff because there's a lot here and we're low on time. Asking the right questions of the text. The first step of comparing translations helps us as we begin to ask good questions of the text. The key to good exegesis and therefore to more intelligent reading of the Bible is to learn to read the text carefully and to ask the right questions of the text. So if you flip your uh, handout over onto the back side there, you'll see this quote is on there and there's there's several of the ideas that are going to be up on the screen are there. The quality of our interpretive questions, or the, excuse me, the quality of our interpretation depends on the quality of our interpretive questions. The better questions that we ask of the text, the better we're going to get at interpreting the Scriptures as we read it. This is a process that takes practice. Practice. Sometimes we talk about the art and science of Bible interpretation. This kind of fits more in like the art side of it where it's a, it's a skill that we learn and that we hone over time. At the beginning when we're first learning to study the Bible, we're asking a lot of questions and over time we figure out the kinds of questions that are better at getting at the answers of what the text is trying to communicate. And so over time we can begin to refine and say, well, I don't need to ask As many questions, I just need to ask better questions. So this process does take practice, but it is improved over time as we begin to work through it. Now, there are essentially four different kinds of interpretive questions that can be asked. The first is questions of content. These seek to understand the substance of the text and the significance of its contents. There are questions of relationship. These probe the relationship of words, phrases, and concepts within and between literary units. Questions of intention. This probes the authorial intention. What did the author intend to communicate by this? And then there are questions of implication. These explore the implications and the ramifications of interpretation. So if I could just expand upon these concepts a little bit, questions of content, we can ask questions like, what's the historical context? So if we were to open up, for example, Jeremiah 29 11, does anyone know what Jeremiah 29 11 says off the top of your head? Yes. I know the plans I have for you, a lot of people say, this is my life verse. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you, to, to prosper you, depending on your translation, you know, to prosper you, uh, to give you a future and a hope, and people latch a hold of that. Yes, what a great promise, Lord. Yes, I claim that promise in Jesus' name. All right. Well, let's ask questions of the text. What's the historical context going on here? Just after the Babylonian exile. We've got people in the Babylonian captivity, right? So there's things going on there. If we Kind of keep going, who were the original recipients? We got the people who were in captivity, right? These were the people that were carried off into captivity. Uh, what's the circumstances? Well, again, they were in captivity, right? They were, they were suffering there, and Jeremiah is writing to encourage them about something that the Lord has promised he's going to accomplish in and through them. What literary genre is this? Right? This is a prophetic text looking forward to something in particular, right? So we ask a whole bunch of questions that kind of probe into some of the what's and the, the circumstances and things of the text. A lot of these questions um, are identified, can, be, can be identified within the broader context of what's going on there. Questions of relationship. Okay, where does this literary unit begin and end? Okay, that verse is in the middle of a paragraph. Well, what's going on within that paragraph? Where does the literary unit begin and end? So, for example, verse ten, which is one verse prior to verse eleven, speaks of seventy years. Well, when did those seventy years begin and end? When's, when was the exile begin, and when did it? When did they return back to the land? Are the details about what a future and a hope entail are they specified in the verses that precede or follow? All right, people want to claim this verse. Well, what does what a future and a hope specifically mean within the context of that passage? What's the relationship within the text itself? How does this promise of blessing compare and contrast with the promise of cursing found just a few verses later? When, G, when God says, I'm going to break a sword against you and y'all are going to die. Well, what's, what's the relationship between the blessings and the curses? What's, how do we compare and contrast these things? These are questions that we can ask that's going to get us to how we should interpret this text. Questions of intention. Well, why did Jeremiah write this letter? What's the point here? What's he trying to communicate? Is this promise intended to be universal or to a specific historical group? What was the response Jeremiah was intending to produce within his recipients, his readers, the people who are reading and hearing his prophecy? These are questions of intention that get to Okay, what, these are often the why questions, right? Why is this this way? What was going on here? And then there's the questions of implication. So, for example, if verse 11 is historically and thematically particular, referring to the captives taken in 597 BC, right, these are the captives, then can or should it be received as a universal unqualified promise of good fortune to all people? Okay, we got to wrestle with that. We got to think about that. Is the relationship of verse 11 contingent upon a new covenant relationship as implied in verses 12 through 14? Again, we're looking at the context. We're trying to examine this and the implications of what's here. Do they extend out or are they limited to the context there? If the promises of good fortune can be appropriated by believers today, well then does that mean the warning of disaster in verses 15 and 20 apply to us as well? There's the implication questions that we begin to get. Now, these questions are only just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole host of questions that we can ask that are going to get us towards asking the right questions of the text. And so when we're studying any individual text, we want to ask good questions so that we can begin to get into the meaning of the text itself. Now, we've got 10 suggestions for asking the right questions, and I'm going to run through these very, very quickly because we are out of time observations should be a springboard for interpretive questions you're comparing bible translations and you're seeing that there's differences there we're observing the differences let that be a springboard towards your interpretive question oh the csb says gods and the you know the new king james says angels why is there a difference there what's going on there that can be a springboard for our interpretive questions When asking interpretive questions, don't limit yourself to general issues of content. Sometimes we can get so focused on just, on just the general questions and the general things of the content itself about what's there that we, we don't get into the relationships to other passages and the relationships to other things that we know. So we don't want to, our questions don't need to be limited by just the words that are there on that text. We want to begin to explore relationships to other things as well. We want to seek questions that are deeper than just the traditional, you know, the who, what, where, when, and why type questions that are often often when we get into inductive Bible study. You know, there's the five W's and the H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Those are good questions and they're good starting places, but we want to probe a little bit deeper than that. We want to try to get to more intricate and to more, uh, more elaborate questions that probe in more than just the who, what, why's that can be discovered. We want to ask both broad questions about intent and purpose and narrow about questions pertaining to particular word meanings. So if we find that there's a translation difference or when we find a word like propitiation, okay, what does the word propitiation mean? What's the meaning of that word itself? That's a big word, right? That's not a word we use in everyday language. So that's a narrow question about a particular word meaning, but then there's a broad questions about intent and purpose about, okay, what's… what's You know, what is the broad purpose of the author's writing in this letter? So, we want to ask both kinds of questions. It's healthy for us to speculate regarding possible answers to our interpretive questions, but we don't want to get too far ahead of the game on that. So, we can speculate like, oh, is this because such and such a thing? Is the reason why Jeremiah is writing this, uh, this passage to encourage the people or to... Uh, or to give them hope about something. Like, uh, we can speculate about the answers to the questions, and that can be a way that we can probe into the interpretive questions a little bit further. We want to allow our knowledge of biblical and theological issues to influence our questions. Okay, so we uh, we run into a text and we find... That there's… maybe there's a text that is just surprising to us based on what we thought we already knew theologically from other texts. Well, how does this passage fit in with what I thought was the case based on this other text? We need to allow our knowledge to influence our questions because that's how we get to… we know that Scripture is harmonious. It's not self-contradictory. So maybe if we find something in a text that seems to be at odds with a previous understanding of, based on a different text, maybe we need to evaluate if we have a, a correct understanding of both texts and seek if we can find harmony between the texts. So an example of this would be, um, you know, if, if we get into th- questions, this, to me this is where the issue of like limited atonement gets off the rails for some individuals. If Christ only died for the elect, right, he only died for, uh, for people who would believe, he didn't die for anyone else in the world, well, there's passages that say that Christ died for the world, Well, so how do we, how do we understand those? Well, we need to bring, we, we need to allow our understandings of these other texts to bring up questions, this doesn't mean that we allow necessarily, one text doesn't necessarily, I'm going to choose my words carefully, it doesn't change the meaning of another text, right? But if we have an understanding from this text, that can help bring in questions. Wait a second. I thought this text says this. Well, does that mean this over here, or does it mean something else? Our understandings of different texts should influence in how we ask questions of other texts. The question-asking process will begin with observation, but it's often going to continue throughout the whole interpretive process. So, we don't we don't just ask questions in the observation phase and then we never ask questions again. Now, we're going to continue to ask questions. Some questions relate more to application than, than interpretation and that's okay. That's good. We don't want to be asking questions simply for the sake of asking questions, because, hey, this is just what we do at this stage. No, the goal is asking quality questions. we want to ask good questions. Early on, we may ask a lot of questions. As we get more more proficient with asking questions, the goal is better questions rather than quantity. And finally, we do not want to feel compelled to answer these interpretive questions prematurely. This is the observation stage. We can speculate on possible answers, but we don't want to actually seek to answer the questions definitively at this stage. We're going to reserve that for a later stage in the interpretive process. So this is the first two steps of the uh, of observation, the first of five, and I hope this helps us. And as we consider comparing translations and then allowing that to help ask good interpretive questions of the text, in future weeks we'll get into more of the answering of those questions and how we sort through those. But that is where we're going to leave things for today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for so uh, so much for today. Thank you for your Word once again. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in your word. Lord, I pray that you help us to be good students, to ask good questions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.